chapter 1 as we continue our series in Colossians entitled Give Me Jesus. And as we're turning there, uh, a reminder that uh, tonight is a part of our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. We'll be studying uh, Luke chapter 2, so we'll get to have Christmas in June. Uh, this year, and all of you are, of course, invited to come out tonight, 6 o'clock. We pick things up uh, this morning in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit. Um, one moment, please. It's nothing, they're just a, a lion loose back there and I had to close the door. So uh, again, Paul writes by the Spirit of God, verse 15. Um, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the uh, beginning, uh, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all of the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for the great truths that we have already sung about you and to you this morning. We thank you for the foundation and the rock that you are in our lives and Lord, if we have never appreciated that before in our lives or uh, underappreciated it, we certainly don't in this day and hour in human history in which so much is in play, so many crazy things just going on, and, and yet our foundation is sure, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your presence and that you are Emmanuel, you are God with us, and we pray now and Acknowledge as we turn to your word that you are present with us in our homes, in our settings, in the sanctuary, out in the courtyard. And you are moving in our midst and eager to do something in individual and personal in each of our lives. And we submit ourselves uh, to that. We thank you for the miracle that our lives are that we would never know the quality of life. We would never be the kind of people that we are apart from your uh, beautiful investment in our lives by your Holy Spirit. And 
We pray that you would use your word this morning to continue to conform us into the life that is above all, into the very image of Christ. And we pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that the church uh, in Colossae had been infiltrated by false teachers and by false teaching uh, to such a degree that it alarmed the uh, founder of the church, a man by the name of Epaphras, uh, enough uh, for him to make a journey of between 1,000 and 1,200 miles uh, by land to the city of Rome to discuss the issue with the Apostle Paul, who was uh, presently uh, imprisoned there in Rome. And uh, the result of the correction of those errors is the book of Colossians and uh, the false doctrines that were filling the church at that time were in a germ form. They would uh, f uh, take a formal uh, form later in the second century and become uh, known uh, as what we know today as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, among other things, uh, the Gnostics taught that matter, whether it be the physical universe or whether it be the human body, uh, that it was evil and that uh, matter was uh, evil and that the, the spirit, and talking about lowercase s on the spirit, uh, the spirit of man uh, was good. And this particular teaching of the Gnostics produced uh, two very, very different camps within Gnosticism. Uh, the first camp that it produced was those who, as a result of this belief, uh, committed themselves to asceticism, committed themselves to legalism, committed themselves to uh, self-flagellation. They would uh, beat themselves with whips in order to keep uh, the, the matter, the body, the e evil aspect of their uh, dual condition uh, under uh, control. And so uh, they did everything that they could to uh, 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 deny the body appetites. And so there was limited contact with the world. They were separatists from the world. Uh, they did not engage in, men did not engage in sexual relationships with women because women were considered to be the origin of evil into human history and, uh, and uh, they, uh, attending to the flesh and the material world, they kept all of that as minimal as possible in their lives. There was a second group that developed that was a polar opposite uh, of that, though they all considered themselves to be Gnostics. Uh, they decided that since matter was evil, no matter what you were going to do about it, and the spirit, uh, spirit is good, that they gave themselves then to license, to sin, to, to debauchery. And they rationalized that uh, since the spirit and the body were two very distinct portions of every individual person, the spirit was good, the body couldn't be anything but bad, that uh, one could engage in all of the sin that they wanted to engage in and uh, with the body 
and, uh, and still remain spiritual because the spiritual part of their life couldn't be affected by uh, the body. And so they adhered to the idea uh, essentially that what we believe and how we live our lives are two entirely different things. They're completely unrelated with one another. It's the ultimate in compartmentalization of this dualism that they, they believed in. And as long as you believe the right things, it didn't matter really what kind of life you lived. And uh, there are, of course, many uh, who call themselves Christians today who, practically speaking, live exactly uh, the same way. Uh, they believe all of the right things about God, all of the right things about God's truth, but practically they live a life that's completely contrary to what they believe. And uh, uh, those, uh, uh, those right, right beliefs. And so they go to church, uh, for instance, uh, on Sunday or whenever they are in church in the course of the week. And, and then the rest of the week they live a life that is, uh, bears no association with what they believe or what they uh, were taught in, in church, a life of sin the rest of the week. And they do it without blinking. Uh, they do it uh, without any kind of a struggle against uh, sin, and in fact, uh, they can even reach the place where they consider their uh, liberty in their life to sin uh, to be a mark of uh, superior spiritual maturity and the maturity of their spiritual state. And of course, biblical Christianity knows nothing about this dualism. Jesus himself said, if you love me, uh, keep my commandments. Not merely know my commandments, but keep my commandments. Uh, John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, with uh, refreshing clarity, the apostle John wrote, he who says, I know him, that is, I know God, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, the beliefs of the Gnostics concerning Jesus was because they believed that all physical matter was evil. Uh, they taught that Jesus could not have had a physical body and uh, that he only appeared to have a physical body and uh, thus, if you were to ever walk on a sandy uh, seashore with him, if you were to look behind uh, both of you, you would see your footprints in the sand, but you would not see his footprints in uh, the sand. They also rejected the idea of Jesus' incarnation, uh, that he was God who took on a human body because that would then attang entangle spirit uh, with, uh, with matter. And they, re they rejected Jesus' death and uh, resurrection as well and uh, believing that a divine spirit came upon Jesus at the moment of his water baptism to begin his three and a half year public ministry and that that divine spirit left him uh, while he was on the cross prior uh, to his, his death. And of course, all of this was contrary, completely so, to uh, the teaching of Jesus himself. And, and what, uh, the reason I introduced this, these teachings uh, in a limited form of the Gnostics is because it has an awful lot to do to understanding why Paul says what he says at this moment in, in his letter. And so Paul is about to blow all of that and more to <laughs> smithereens uh, in this passage. And again, 
Um, Paul does so by not making us experts in uh, Gnosticism uh, as Christians, but he so clearly presents Jesus to us uh, that when uh, the Jesus that is presented to us is laid uh, side by side with the teachings of the Gnostic, any uh, Christian and certainly any uh, open seeker concerning knowing the truth about Jesus would uh, understand that these are two entirely different descriptions and two indif- entirely different uh, qualities of life will uh, flow forth uh, from them. And the fact that God works all things together for good in the life of a Christian is evidenced by the fact that Paul's description uh, and uh, in his correction of the heresy of Gnosticism here uh, provides us with one of the most beautiful and rich descriptions of Jesus to be found in the entire Bible. It's on a par with uh, John's Gospel chapter 1, with Philippians chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 1. This is an amazing passage, though often overlooked passage of Scripture in in terms of the description of Jesus in all of the Bible. You notice in verses 15 through 19, we have uh, Paul's really majestic description of Jesus. And uh, he gives it to us in order to drive home the point that uh, Jesus is deserving of nothing less uh, in the church itself and nothing less in the life of any individual Christian than uh, the absolute supremacy. And uh, that's the point he's uh, driving home. And he begins his description there in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. That is the very nature and the character of God the Father have been perfectly revealed to us uh, in Jesus. It is through Jesus that we are best able to know uh, what God the Father is like. And the reason that we are in need of this kind of revelation from uh, uh, Jesus and through Jesus is encapsulated for us in that word that you see there in verse 15, and it is the word invisible that is used to describe uh, God the Father. And the problem that we face in trying to, uh, to uh, fully get to know God the Father, what he's like and so forth, is that he is invisible, the Bible teaches. Uh, he is spirit, and because of that, it is very hard for physical creatures like us to come to know him or to understand uh, him. The apostle uh, John wrote in this regard, he said, for the law has come uh, through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. Jesus himself taught to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And thus, uh, Jesus being God the Son himself provides us with this, uh, the ultimate and the perfect answer to our great curiosity, and that is, what is God like? What is God the Father like? And he is exactly like uh, what we see in Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 9, uh, he said to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you have uh, not 
uh, known me, remember Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be sufficient. Well, yes, I guess it would be, Philip. Anything else you want? Uh, you know, a Coke or something? Uh, so, and, and Jesus rebukes him and he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Again, in John chapter 1, verse 17, uh, in that passage where uh, John writes in that gospel, no one has seen God at any time. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he, speaking of Jesus, has declared him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 1, God who at various times and in uh, different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last uh, days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. And when he had uh, himself poured out, uh, purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, what uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, Paul is saying here, and that is that Jesus is an exact rep re representation. He is an a, a exact revelation uh, of the nature and the character of God the Father. Paul goes on to describe Jesus in, later in verse 15. He is the firstborn over all creation. And this speaks of Jesus' absolute authority uh, over all of the created uh, world and universe, everything that is created. And what Paul does here in using the, the word firstborn in his description, he is using Old Testament language now uh, to describe uh, Jesus to us. In the Old Testament, the firstborn in a family possessed the ultimate authority within the family, the ultimate authority over the family. And Paul is telling us that what is true of the firstborn uh, within an individual family in the Old Testament is true of Jesus over all creation, that he has absolute authority uh, over it. Now, in verse 15, that's a verse that, uh, if you ever talk with Jehovah Witnesses, you know that this is a verse that uh, they make a beeline to take you to. And uh, you have to be careful with the Jehovah Witnesses on this verse because they, they will always take you here in an attempt to convince you that Paul's use of the word firstborn associated with, it, with Jesus is communicating uh, that Jesus is not divine, that he is not eternal, that he is a uh, created being like uh, everyone and everything else. But in the scriptures, firstborn does not always mean uh, born first. Its meaning is deeper. The easiest way to uh, deal with the Jehovah Witnesses, if you ever talk with one and, and uh, they take you to this passage, the easiest thing to do always in trying to understand an individual verse is to read the, the context of the verse. And if a person just simply reads down into verse uh, 16 and 17, you see that in verse 16, Jesus is described as the creator 
of all things. And then in verse 17, uh, he is before all things. And so he is the firstborn, as the Holy Spirit describes him here. He cannot be a part of creation if he is before creation, and he cannot be the creator of all things if he is a creation. So the entire argument uh, collapses. The description continues in verse 16 where Paul tells us of Jesus, by him all things were created. In other words, he is the origin of all creation. He is the person of the Godhead through whom the creative uh, act was uh, performed. And uh, without exception, every single created thing owes its existence to uh, Jesus. And as Paul tells us here, whether things that are uh, visible, that is the material world, uh, the material universe, Uh, around us, whether it is the material world that we see with the naked eye or that we see with the telescope or we see uh, with the microscope. And he says uh, uh, he is the creator of all things, including things invisible, talking about the spiritual realm that exists all around us in this physical uh, uh, realm, including thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. And here, uh, clearly, he's talking about uh, the angelic realm that operates uh, all around us. He created that realm as well. As we'll see a little bit later in uh, another time, in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the false teachers there in Colossae Uh, were moving Christians away from uh, the worship uh, of Jesus and into the worship of angels as a means of uh, achieving true spiritual uh, revelation and insight and enlightenment. And uh, uh, so uh, this is why Paul brings this up and he says, why would you worship Uh, the creation. As wonderful as angels are, uh, they are still the creation. Why would you worship the creation as opposed to the creator? And the creator always, of course, being uh, greater than the creation. And uh, again, Jehovah Witnesses, they teach that uh, Jesus was a created angel. And in fact, is uh, Michael the arch, uh, archangel? And again, Paul here in this passage completely uh, blows it up. There are parallels between ancient Gnosticism and, and some of the teachings of, of Jehovah Witnesses. And uh, this truth, uh, the fact that he, uh, by him all things were created, speaks to uh, the fact that Jesus is eternal, uh, like God the Father, And uh, the Holy Spirit, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And then talking about Him as the Creator uh, of all things, it speaks uh, to His, not only His, His eternalness, but it also speaks to His absolute power. You notice further in verse 16 that we're told that all things were created through Him and 
by him. So not only was everything created uh, through him, or uh, all things were created through him and for him. So not only were, was everything uh, created by him, but you notice that everything was created for him. There is a song that's recorded in the book of Revelation that is sung uh, in heaven toward uh, God the Father. And uh, what the Apostle Paul does is he tells us that that same song uh, can equally be sung uh, to uh, Jesus here. It's equally true of him and uh, declaring that we have not only been created by God, but we have been created for God's pleasure. We have been created for relationship with God. And uh, part of that song that's sung to God in eternity, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. But the praise doesn't stop there. It goes on and says, And for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And the realization for us as human beings that we were not only created by God, but we were created uh, for God's pleasure. We were created uh, for relationship with God. And, uh, and we can never experience fulfillment in this life or satisfaction or a true sense of meaning or any true uh, peace in, in life until we are engaged as a creation, until we are engaged in the very thing, the supreme thing that we have been created for, and that is relationship with God and bringing pleasure to God out of uh, that relationship and trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, being born again by the Holy Spirit, and now having capacity for a relationship with God. We can only know meaning and purpose in our life as, as is intended uh, uh, by being engaged in the very thing that we've been created for relationship with God. And that's why until I become a Christian, until I engage in this relationship with God, there will always be a sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. Because until I become a Christian and begin a relationship with God, there is something more to life than I have experienced, and it is the most important thing. And that is to know God and to be in relationship uh, with Him. The description continues in verse 17. He, that is Jesus, is before all things, speaking of the fact that He is eternal, speaking of the fact that He is self-existent. He existed before any created thing uh, existed. And since there are only two essential categories uh, in the universe around us, there is uh, the creator and there is the creation. Those are the two great categories in, uh, in, uh, in existence. And uh, so you have uh, God and then everything else. And, uh, and in order for Jesus to be before all things, he is eternal, he is divine, and uh, God the Son. And it only makes sense that being before all things is a requirement for uh, creating all things. 
Jesus affirmed the, the same truth concerning himself. You might remember when he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, uh, I am. And they said, How could you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. Which tells you, uh, uh, Jesus said, He's probably, you know, he's early 30s at that point. Life had already begun to take some wear and tear on him uh, in terms of of his ministry. But uh, he said, no, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses the name uh, of of God there in describing his relationship and and existence before, uh, before Abraham. Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, Uh, You might remember in John chapter 17, he offers what is known as a high priestly prayer to God the Father, and a part of that prayer, uh, it declares, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You notice in the latter part of verse 17, Paul describes Jesus and declares that in him all things consist. Not only did he create everything, but all things are held together by him. They, he holds everything together. And uh, in other words, he maintains the universe. He maintains the creation. He sustains uh, all that is in it. So from the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, uh, to the activity of every uh, human individual and the angelic realm, he maintains it. Uh, Right down to uh, the individual Adam. All of it is dependent uh, upon him. I hope that each of you is a part of your childhood. I don't know what a childhood is by now. I can only say that I'm thankful uh, for the childhood that I had uh, and uh, way before technology. And uh, that just make, make me uh, uh, an old guy or whatever. Uh, but um, uh, I, free time to look at a cloud, uh, take a walk, wonder what am I going to do uh, today Uh, These are things that only later in life you realize what a luxury they were in a childhood when uh, the demands of life become so much greater in adulthood. But I hope each of you had a chance to uh, play with magnets. And uh, one of the interesting things about playing with magnets as a kid is, of course, trying to stick a magnet onto anything and, okay, it sticks to this and it doesn't stick to that. And, and that kind of thing. But if you had two magnets that were of comparable size, uh, the realization that as you would uh, take and, and attempt to put them together, uh, positive pole to positive pole, negative pole to negative pole, that there was a force that kept those magnets from coming together. And so if you turned them around and you, you put the positive to the negative and negative to the positive, they would immediately link together. But try and do it positive to positive, negative to negative. The force that was required, continual force to hold uh, the the magnets uh, uh, together. It's interesting that scientists today, they candidly admit admit there's a great mystery hiding inside of every single uh, atom in the universe because within the nucleus of every atom, there's this dense knot of uh, protons and neutrons 
And, uh, and without getting too technical, each of the protons, many protons that make up uh, every atom, each of them has a positive charge. Uh, so they should be massively repelling uh, one another within the, the structure of an individual atom, making it a, an, a, a physically impossible for an atom to uh, uh, even exist. But there's something, there's some force that scientists, they have no explanation for even to this day, something that holds every atom uh, together uh, in, in defiance of the very structure uh, of, of, of the atom. And uh, scientists have dubbed the force that holds the atom together uh, the strong force. They used to call it nuclear glue. Uh, but uh, the strong force or the nuclear uh, strong force. But again, no explanation for it at all. And here Paul tells us what that force is, and it is Jesus Christ himself who holds all things uh, together. Interesting to realize that while he was uh, laid on the ground on the morning of his crucifixion, and uh, the nail that was taken as he was spread out on that cross, uh, he held together the very nails that were driven into his hands and his feet. He held together the very mallet that was used to drive those nails. He held together the very cross that he was uh, crucified uh, uh, upon. The Bible teaches that one day at the end of the age, Jesus is going to release his hold uh, upon all of these atoms that make up the fallen universe. They will then, this present fallen universe will dissolve with a great noise and a fervent heat and give way to a new heaven and a new earth that's untainted uh, by sin. Peter speaks of it in his uh, second epistle, chapter 3, verse 10. He said, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night uh, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Uh, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So it's not going to take any great effort on Jesus's part when that day comes for this to give way to a new heaven and a new earth for it to dissolve, to be, have it melt with a fervent heat. All he will do, uh, no effort required at all, is he will simply uh, release what it is that uh, he is uh, applying to every atom in the universe in order for it to uh, hold together. And what you're, what you're going to basically have here is, is it's described as a nuclear explosion of, of the entire universe. That's why Peter speaks about the great noise. Can you imagine the entire creation becoming uh, something like that? And, uh, and so all of it interesting in light of the fact of 2,000 years ago, here is Paul describing Jesus as the one in whom all things uh, consists. The answer to a question uh, that nobody can answer independent of Christ even today. In verse 18, he's described as the head of the body, uh, the church. The church refers to every single Christian that exists uh, uh, in the world collectively. And Paul likens us to a body whose head is Christ. In other words, just as a human body is to be in, uh, in subjection to uh, the, the physical head of, of that body, 
and the human body is a means by which a person, uh, the head expresses itself, uh, so too as Christians. Jesus is our head, and the body of Christ, all of us as Christians collectively in the world, uh, are the means by which Jesus expresses himself in, uh, in the world. And to guide the body of Christ, to guide us as Christians, to control and, and direct the body of Christ. And here, Paul doesn't use, as he does so often in the New Testament, he uses the imagery of, of the Christians universally as being a body and talking, uh, driving home the point of the interconnectedness that, that we are to have uh, being a part of, of a single body. Here he goes in a different direction uh, to communicate the total dependence of the church uh, on Christ in, uh, for its very survival. And here you have the Gnostics coming into the local church and uh, they're trying to redefine uh, Jesus and uh, even push him out of the way for other things uh, and they're threatening the very survival of Christianity if it was allowed uh, to happen. And so what the head is to the uh, physical body, uh, Jesus is to be to each uh, of, our, uh, uh, of us as Christians. He declares at the end of verse 18 that uh, he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was not the first one to rise from the dead. Uh, there were others who r- rose from the dead in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but he's the most prominent, Paul is saying, to uh, do so. He is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that his resurrection demonstrated his authority over death. And, and it constituted a, uh, an absolute victory over this enemy of man called death. And that victory is a victory that Jesus imparts to everyone who trusts in him for salvation and, uh, and, uh, and receives that uh, as a result of that, receives from him everlasting life. He is the firstborn over uh, the dead. And again, firstborn speaking of his absolute authority over death. And you notice that word there in that last sentence in verse 18, where um, he declares uh, that, and notice that, or that last phrase, that, and that, that word that is worth noticing, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Paul tells us the reason that he's told us these eight things concerning Christ. Uh, There's a reason why he lays all of this out and he gives us the implications of it. And the implications, uh, he declares, that in all things he that is Jesus may have the preeminence. And uh, here's one of these words that Paul uses uh, in uniquely in the book of Colossians. And if he is going to use a new vocabulary to describe Jesus, then we ought to adopt the new vocabulary, attempt to understand the new vocabulary. And preeminence just simply means to be first. That is because he is supreme over all things, he is to have the supremacy uh, over each of our lives as Christians and, and supremacy uh, over the church. And again, uh, the idea is, as Paul is laying it out, is that Jesus cannot be improved upon by anyone. 
and he certainly cannot be improved uh, upon uh, by the Gnostic teachers and what they were saying, that the gospel, uh, that the Christianity that Jesus has provided to us cannot be approved upon either. And so he's saying, don't make any changes to Jesus. He is perfect, uh, exactly as he is. Uh, Rather, a better way to spend your time is just simply making him supreme in your life and central uh, in your life. Uh, there's a, there was an advertisement that ran when I was younger. I don't know if it was in my uh, young adult life or wh- whether in my youth, but you might remember, I don't remember what the product was, but the, the, the catch line was, it, um, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. And uh, of course, there is no Mother Nature, but uh, it, it always comes into my mind when people try to fool with Jesus in the attempt that somehow as human beings we can improve upon who and what he is. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's futile and it's a, a folly and it's what Paul is saying here. But it is interesting as we close here that uh, Paul doesn't stop there with this description of Jesus. Uh, in fact, he says all that he has said Uh, in those verses to then declare that all of that makes Jesus uniquely qualified uh, for this, his work of reconciliation between uh, man and God as he describes it there in verses 20 to 23. And you notice in in verse uh, 19 though, uh, before Paul, uh, 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 before he gets into that, he declares of Jesus in him, uh, all of the full, that in him all of the fullness should dwell. So again, he's speaking of Jesus' deity, of his equality with God the Father. Uh, full was a, full and fullness was a Gnostic uh, buzzword. And uh, Paul uh, uses it in, uh, in, in describing Jesus. And, so, and Paul declares that far from uh, God the Father being troubled by this at all, uh, he declared God the Father to be pleased with it. Uh, the word, uh, the, uh, when Paul speaks here about uh, <clears throat> being Uh, reconciled here in this uh, passage in verse 20. It's used again in in verse 21. Reconciliation speaks of the restoration of a relationship that was uh, evidently healthy at one time, uh, but now has been ruptured or been uh, 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 severed for some reason. And it's created a estrangement within the relationship that somehow now a reconciliation is required. And the damage, of course, uh, this estrangement occurred in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve uh, partook of the forbidden fruit, violated the sole command of God uh, in existence at that particular point in time. And as a result uh, of their sin, they were separated from the relationship with God they were created for and uh, we were separated uh, as, a resu- uh, 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 as well as their descendants. Now, Paul tells us at the end of verse 20 that only Jesus can provide us with uh, uh, that reconciliation between us and God. And, uh, and he says, when that happens, there's an accompanying peace with God uh, that occurs. 
And the only solution, the only thing that can purchase reconciliation between us and God, as he describes uh, it there, is through Jesus' death upon the cross. And Jesus' death upon the cross was, uh, is the propitiation. It is the full and satisfying payment uh, for the forgiveness of our sins from the vantage point uh, of, of heaven. And it's only faith in him as our Savior that allows us to approach God in, uh, in, a, in establishing a relationship uh, with the confidence that we'll be accepted. And though uh, God the Father, God is, uh, was innocent, he was the innocent party in this great uh, division that occurred, this great separation that occurred in the Garden uh, of Eden, it is God who took the initiative to reconcile us back to himself. It's important to realize that when reconciliation is described in the, in the New Testament, it never speaks of God being reconciled to us. He does not need to be reconciled to us. It always speaks of us being reconciled to God. We're the ones that created the separation. We are the ones that were in need of, of that uh, reconciliation uh, uh, occurring. Paul describes in verse 21 what we were before our reconciliation with God, what we were before uh, we became Christians. He said that we were alienated from God, and the word alienated means that we were separated, we were estranged from God, we were cut off uh, from God, and, uh, and the, the symptoms of that, the implications, what was, you say, well, what, how would I know that... Um, that, that what are the symptoms of the, the, the uh, catastrophe of this condition? And it was that estrangement from God, being cut off from God, that resulted in our lives being empty, our lives being lonely, that sense of there being something more, our lives being fearful, our lives uh, being filled with guilt, and, uh, and, and these, uh, these things that marked our lives. He said that before the reconciliation, we were enemies toward God in our minds by wicked works. In other words, we were hostile to God in uh, both our thinking and in our actions. Uh, all of our actions come out of our thinking. They come out of what's in our mind. And so we were uh, enemies of God both in, on the inside and out of, on the outside in our rebellion uh, against God. And, uh, but Paul thankfully doesn't leave us there. Uh, we don't want to stay too long on what we were before we were Christians. And, and he knows that. So in verse 22, he moves into what we've become in God's sight uh, uh, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. He says that uh, we are now holy. And that means to be separated from sin and uh, separated to God. He describes us as blameless. That is that we are cleared of all guilt before God. He describes us as being above reproach. And that means that we are above accusation by the devil or anyone uh, related to uh, our sin. And of course, none of this comes any other way than through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. Jesus famously declared, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father 
uh, but by me. And you say, boy, why did he, you know, uh, overthrow the apple cart? I mean, he was doing so good. Everybody was liking all of his messages on love and peace and treating one another and golden rule and all of that. Why does he have to be so narrow related to salvation? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Sim- for the simple reason that it's the truth. And, uh, and that truth is as true as, as every other truth that, that uh, Jesus uh, spoke. And uh, so no teacher, no teaching can improve upon what God has supplied to us uh, by virtue of us becoming Christians in making us holy, blameless, above reproach in the eyes of God. There was nothing that uh, any Gnostic in the ancient world or any false teacher today that anyone should be able to come knock on our door or talk with us and uh, we become convinced that something could be superior to what Christ has provided to us and, uh, and the quality of life that we enjoy, even this side of heaven, to say nothing of, of heaven one day itself. And so in verse 23, uh, we have Paul's uh, call, uh, really Paul's warning to the church there in Colossae to not be seduced by the teachers, to continue in the faith, in the Christianity that Jesus has provided to us, uh, as opposed to being seduced by these false teachers. In other words, again, once again, look at what they're offering uh, to you and who or what can compare to who and what Jesus is and uh, what he has provided to us. I close here with just two very simple applications. For those of us who know the Lord and, uh, and uh, are Christians, I want you to, to, and the reason I didn't just do verses 15 through 19 this week and then do 20 uh, through 23 the next week is it's a combined uh, section. And, and I want you to notice the, the jarring contrast between the two sections. And you look at uh, that Jesus who is described there in verses 15 through 19. Again, the creator, the, all things consist and, and the entire list that we've gone through. And then and to realize that that Jesus that is described in those verses uh, is the same Jesus who was beaten beyond recognition, uh, had died on the cross of Calvary, was buried and rose again on the third day in order to provide us with the reconciliation that is described in verses 20 through 23 that it is the Jesus that is described there in in verses uh, 15 through 19 that we will uh, stand before one day uh, as uh, as Christians. And uh, you remember the apostle John, how familiar he was with Jesus in Jesus' public ministry as it's described uh, in the gospels. And yet when the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle John, then sees Jesus in his eternal glory. As it's described there in the book of Revelation, he turned and uh, to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. 
clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about uh, the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, uh, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice, all of this speaking of Jesus, as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like uh, the sun shining in its strength. And John said, and when I saw him, I said, hey, bro. No, that's not what he said. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And then Jesus took him by his right hand and said to him, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. You remember Isaiah, the prophet, when he had his great vision of Jesus in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried uh, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so Isaiah said, Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And every once in a while, I think in our current Western culture and Christianity as it's uh, understood and as it's practiced in the United States of America, to be reminded uh, of... Uh, all of this concerning Jesus as Paul does here. Because I think that sometimes Christians get into error and we can get into false teaching and uh, we can begin to follow absolute nonsense uh, in, uh, spiritually speaking today because we forget this part of Jesus. And we lose our fear uh, of him there is not a part of our life yes we know him uh, as our friend we know him as our lord we know him as our savior but no relationship with him is full there can really be no fullness of worship of him unless there is a, a, an absolute uh, reverence for how he's described here and, and, and in that relationship with him, knowing him as a friend, yes, but tremendous sobriety related to him as well. And I think there's an awful lot of people today that think you can play loosey-goosey with him and uh, things can become way, way too casual for how he is viewed, how the worship of him is viewed, and, and the relationship that we have with him. And it's this description of Jesus that reminds us that he deserves no less position in our lives as Christians uh, than the place of preeminence. 
and to make sure that as we've studied his word here this morning, that before we leave this place today, that if he does not have the preeminence that he alone deserves in our lives, that we not leave until we pray to him and give him that preeminence. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, to simply go back to, well, the question is, why not? Why not? Have you found something better than Jesus in the world? You say, well, I don't know much about Jesus. Find out about Jesus. Uh, So you have a point of comparison. But sufficient for our purposes here this morning to realize that you are made for creation, you are made for a relationship with God. And until you are engaged in that relationship, nothing in life will make sense. Nothing in life will satisfy. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front here in the sanctuary, also out by the big screen in the, in the courtyard. And if you have never done that, we would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning, we'd love to pray with you and for you concerning your need as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the majesty of this description of Jesus that you have provided to us in this passage by your Spirit, and that you connect it so closely to our reconciliation with you, that Jesus had to be all of that in its fullness, in his fullness rather, in order to also be our Redeemer and to be our Reconciler. And Father, we are humbled by your love for us. Jesus, we are humbled by your love for us. That you would be willing to be all that you are described to be in verses 15 through 19 and then come into human history and endure all that you endured. Not only the pain of the cross, but the shame of the cross in order that we might be reconciled and know you. We are humbled by your love, we are humbled by your sacrifice, and we say thank you in the simple way that we can, with our lips and with our heart, for what you have done for us. And we thank you, we uh, uh, bless you, we praise you in this place today for who you are and what you are and what you have come to mean to us individually. And we do so in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Trinity, would you close us now?